Hello, hello. Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. And this is Dee Dee Perry. Last time I checked, Preeti. <laughs> Hi, Dee. Hi, friend. What's How happening? are you? You know, I don't know, but I am so excited about tonight because it's been a hot minute since we've we've regrouped and had an awesome guest, and I'm super excited to to get this party started. I, I really am. It's such it's just so great to be back, you know. Is it like riding a bike? Like people say that, but I feel as though I get on the bike after I haven't ridden a bike for a long time, and I still might fall a bit before I'm really grooving. I like I have to go slow. So tonight, you know, if I'm a little rusty, just roll with it, girl, roll with it. No, it's all good. I think I think one of the biggest lessons for me this past year is sort of embrace the messy, you know, because mm-hmm. there's I, there's such an incredible freedom in saying that it can be messy or I can be messy or I cannot be perfect and it's going to be okay, you know, so I think that's that. that. <laughs> I think you might have just given license to a whole lot of 12 year olds that don't want to make their bed. (laughs) I didn't make my bed this morning. So (laughs) neither should I. And I feel like a champ when I do, but you know, sometimes it'd be like that. Well, getting back into the swing of things, old friend. Okay. No, you know what time it is. I have a question for you. Okay. I want to note for the audience that Dee did give me you know, several times this week, do you want to know the question? Do you want to know the question? And I said, no. So here we go. This will be right straight from the heart. Straight, spontaneous. She does not know what's coming for her. Drum roll, please. Okay, look, we are doing this. It's been a minute. And Preeti, I'm trying to bring us back on brand. I'm trying to bring us back on message. We are what? The Bali effect where we do what? Uh, you forgot that's your thing. Line. No, no, but that's your thing. You like saying it. Explore talk about pivotal moments, moments that have changed us, moved us. Yeah. Okay. Explore life's pivotal moments for a minute. Mm-hmm. I thought you'd forgotten. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, Lord. <laughs> that's okay. So with that, where we explore life's pivotal moments on the Bali effect, I actually was inspired by an article that I read uh, a few weeks ago with John Batiste, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Colbert musical director guy, fun fact girl, he looks almost a spitting image of a guy I used to. um, And he, like when I first saw his face, I was like, when did he learn to play the the piano and all this stuff? Anyway, I'm digressing. I told you I'm a little rusty. But anyway, Mm -hmm. John Batiste was interviewed and he said, you know, some of the things that I'm thankful for are my family, my health and the power of choice. Mm. Right? He's, he's a prodigy. He's an actual musical prodigy. I love everything that he does. But that one stopped me in my tracks because I said, isn't that what the Bali effect really is about? You know, the power of choices. Choices mm-hmm. are the beginning of everything. Yeah. And they can have huge, huge monumental long-term effects. Mm-hmm. So, Preeti. <laughs> yes. This year has been wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure this week has been wild. I'm sure today has been wild. Can you tell me and however many listeners we've got, I'm shooting for the Raptors. I think we're up to 25. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our families and friends. Right, yeah, Right. Exactly. Yeah. But can you tell me um, what is one of the most 
impactful choices that you think you have made for yourself in this last year? Wow, that's a great question. Now I wish I had known it before. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing that comes up immediately, so there, I've made actually quite a few big choices, if you will, this year in terms of how I spend my day and how, my, how I spend my time. But I think the one that I would say that's the most impactful was that I didn't have to make choices that didn't resonate with who I am in the moment, right? Like that, that actually I could, I could not make a choice if given the opportunity and that was okay. And that was a big shift for me because I think there were several moments this year where I felt I have to, I have to do this, or I have to show up for this, or I have to be the person I was, or I have to move through something quickly because there's an expectation. And I made the choice to say, you do not have to do anything that doesn't give you some semblance of peace. And that's a very different way, I think, of operating that I, I had been used to. And I think we all maybe are, you know, we hear so many um, facets of this, right? The great resignation we hear about, right? That sort of comes down the same. I don't have to um, make the same choices, nor do I have to show up in the same way. And for me, that's that's really brought an incredible amount of peace to my life. Now, you know, and I and I think settling into that, right? You don't you don't have to. You don't have to make a big decision. You don't have to make a choice, um, which is exactly the opposite of the question you asked me. But that is the choice I made. <laughs> no, that's where we that's, are. But that's it. That is the choice. Mm -hmm. Deciding to just protect yourself mm -hmm. at whatever cost is a powerful mm -hmm. decision to make. And if peace is the outcome, then it's probably the best decision to make. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and it was sort of reflected even in the Bali effect, right? Because we, 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 you know, I, I actually made a conscious decision to say, not the choice I want to make right now. The thing, you know, and what's so interesting about that question is I love the Bali effect and I'm so excited about tonight. And so, so, you know, giving yourself the room and the opportunity to be like, even if you love or loved it, you don't have to make that choice. Or you make the choice of, I need a break. Yeah. Um, wait, and now I usually ask you, don't I turn this question around to you? Is this, this, <laughs> I can't wait to get to our guest. Um, <laughs> you know what? The, the funny thing is I was thinking so much about what the question would be that I didn't spend time thinking about if you were going to ask it to me. And so I don't have. Guess what? <laughs> you can make a choice not to answer. <laughs> you know, I you know, I, I actually, I will make a choice to answer, and okay. that will be to offer perhaps a less uh, philosophical response than yours, and your responses always are. Thank you very much. And I will say, I made the choice to get back into exercising, like in the past week. And I have not done that for months because like the Fresh Prince episode, my life got flipped, turned upside down. We'll deal with that <laughs> in another episode. And the exercise just went by the wayside. However, I am starting to see the long-term benefits um, that come from just a little bit of physical activity yeah. on a daily basis. It's almost like investing, like mm -hmm. it will pay a dividend later on. I hope things happen, mm -hmm. but 
if I don't, you know, set it aside now, it could have far reaching consequences later on. And so I just hit a point of just put on your sneakers. Even if you're just <laughs> walking for 25 minutes, just do something. But I'm like back in the gym and, and moving and sweating and it feels great. And of course, you know, things are harder, but I'm okay. I don't have an end goal, but just doing it. It actually makes me feel better. I do think that sort of resonates with the theme of like, okay, but it's not going to be this extreme, like I'm going to go back and there's a goal and I have to lose weight or I have to do this. And I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes we're more successful in our endeavors when we, when we move into it on a day by day basis, you know, that that's all I can manage. Sun up to sun down. But tonight Mm -hmm. we have a mega star in our midst and we are honored and I cannot wait for this so much. Okay. We could just read the bio and, and the entire, (laughs) and then take up the rest of the time that we have here, but we definitely want to dive into conversation with the one and only Aaliyah Jones Harvey. She is an Olivier Award winning. And I say that because that's uh, England's version of the Tony Awards folks, Mm -hmm. a four-time Tony nominated producer who, with her partner, Stephen Bird, has focused on mounting productions with people of color on the stage, on the creative team, in the management, and as co-producers. And as the only African-American woman who is lead producing on Broadway, y'all heard me right, she proudly produced Broadway and West End hits. I am talking Ain't Too Proud. I am talking Romeo and Juliet. I'm talking Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. I'm talking Trip to Bountiful. I'm talking Eclipsed, Paramore with Cirque du Soleil, The Iceman Cometh, Smokey Joe's Cafe, American Sun, and most recently, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times and Temptations, Get Up, Stand Up, the Bob Marley musical on the West End, which just opened to rave reviews over in London. And now Michael Jackson, the musical, just started previews this week on Broadway. She is a powerhouse. She's gotten so many awards. We are honored to be in the mix of the one and only. Thank you so much for for offering your time with us, Aaliyah. And welcome to the Bali Effect. Welcome, Aaliyah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to get into a conversation about uh, the Bali Effect with you. Well, thank you so, so much. I don't even know where we should start. Uh, so, of course, we, we'd like to give a little bit or just get a little bit of understanding of who these, you know, wonderful people who are our guests are. So, Leah, where are you from originally? I'm from Upper Marlboro, Maryland, okay. or Largo. I don't know. Some people say Largo. Some people say Upper Marlboro. I, I spent some time in the DMV. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm from the sticks. Okay. All right. So didn't start out. You weren't, I was born and bred in New York. Suburbs, suburbs of DC. Okay. And growing up in the suburbs of DC, was theater on your radar? Were you an artsy kid? Were you a creative? What was your, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, so my parents definitely ensured that I was exposed. Um, ballet from like, three piano from eight um flute oh i played the from flute. maybe 10 that was in okay. school mm-hmm. um and county chorus i sang in the county chorus um Ooh. and then triple uh, 
Right. And then, um, uh, and then they brought me to see, so in middle school, I, I feel like I was around 14, 13, 13 or so when they brought me to see, um, uh, Paul Robeson on Broadway. And then, uh, my eighth grade English teacher brought a busload of us up to New York to see Starlight Express. And we thought we were going to sleep through the show. We were like, what is this? It's going to be so dry. We stayed up all night long the night before partying in the hotel, at least our version. We were teenagers. And, um, and you know, it was basically cats on skates. Yes. But I don't know for, for, you know, a 13 year old, I was like, this is amazing. The stage came out into the audience and was weaving all through the audience. And, you know, there, the, the premise being that all of the actors are train cars. And so um, it was, it was an amazing show. I thought, I thought that um, it was bigger. It was larger than life. And that was exciting to me. Never thought that I would have anything to do with Broadway, no, or working in the theater, no. Um, in high school, I acted in the Ides of March. That was my big theater exposure. <laughs> so you you Classical. actually you actually weren't thinking at any of those moments when you were, you know, visited Broadway as a child or even in the play that, Oh, this is where I, I want to spend my time. I need to make this my mission. Not at all. Not even an inkling. Like my idea in high school was that I was going to start an electric car company. Oh, well, that's um, all right. Move. But I was going to be Elon Musk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so you had that vision. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. That's impressive. That really is. I wasn't thinking about electric cars, but. Oh, I saw the world like, we need to go electric now. And, you know, we need to save the planet. And I'm just going to start that company and it'll take over the world. And, you know, but I hit the roadblock of not really appreciating, um, mechanical engineering, which is, I was, I was studying engineering and moved away from mechanical after <laughs> I decided this was not for me. I'm not going to be designing cars. Um, that's not my thing. <laughs> and this was in college? In college. Did you so I up, oh, I went to Spelman uh, College, studied math there, and then Georgia Tech, studied engineering there. Um, and we're, you know, it's, it's a, it's a windy road. So you want to talk about pivots? That's all my life has been is lots of pivoting. <laughs> you know, I think, I think sometimes, especially when I hear so far the story, I think, you know, when I was growing up, you often hear about people that are as successful as you in the arts starting, you know, so young and being so determined and focused in that area. And it's wonderfully refreshing to hear that it wasn't even on your radar. You know, I think a lot of our listeners would really appreciate that because 
I think we are taught as a society, like oh, focus and determine and move. And, and so I let's keep going because I can't wait to hear when, when there was this recognition for you of, of, oops, nope, maybe we should be doing something else. Um, okay. So I was pivoting, pivoting, pivoting. I didn't really, and I have to say, I don't know if I'm an outlier, but I didn't have an aha moment in college. Like this mm-hmm. is the thing I want to be doing. Um, I think after that idea of me starting the car company fizzled, um, <laughs> I, I was just flailing. Um, Procter and Gamble is where I went after college, mm-hmm. uh, which was, which was a great first professional, you know, career experience because it's the last promote from within company. So they spend a lot of time nurturing employees and trying to make you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. So I was moving through a lot of different departments at P&G. Mm-hmm. Um, doing like scientific stuff, if that's a word, but you know what I mean? No, I was the IT, I was the IT guy for a minute. <laughs> And then she guy. I wasn't on the hotline, but I was building um, databases. <laughs> I wasn't on the 1 800 number that you call when you're. You weren't IT desk support. You were. You I wasn't were. desk support. Yeah, got it. Because yeah. I don't know how they do it, man. I couldn't deal with it. But um, I, I just think the IT support people are, are a special breed. Yeah, they are special breed. They've they've got to be so patient. (laughs) But um, that was, I mean, the fun part about that job was um, that the databases I I was building were for perfume plants in Worms, Germany, in um, Kobe, Japan, in uh, um, Caracas, Venezuela. Um, so sexy spots, uh, mm-hmm. Mexico City. So that was the fun part of my job that it was international. Um, got to do a little bit of international traveling yeah. um, and learned a lot about the perfumes that go into our everyday consumer products. Who knew? <laughs> so, oh. I mean, your toilet paper has perfume in it, which is which is um, eye opening. For me, mm-hmm. I didn't it know that. It does before. smell nice. <laughs> yeah, when it comes off the, um, you know, the manufacturing assembly line, it doesn't smell that way. So, um, hence the need. Hence the need. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I moved through a number of areas. I was in finance at PNG for a minute, which opened my eyes to what finance can be, and then um, moved over to, to marketing. Started building websites for all of our brands. And this was back when websites were not a thing. So companies adopted websites, believe it or not, late. Um, You know, everybody talks about the World Wide Web as if it started in the 70s and we all jumped on it. But no, late 90s, 2000, we were running to catch up. Mm -hmm. I remember working on the Crest White Strips project. That's a P&G brand. And Crest White Strips didn't have a website. And all of a sudden, it happened overnight. It happened maybe inside of three months. 
all of a sudden consumers were assuming that they could go to a website to get all of the information about a product before they bought it. Um, and if that website wasn't there, they weren't going to buy your product because your product was no longer legitimate if it didn't have a website. And so all of a sudden we were scrambling to build hundreds of websites inside of a few months. Um, and that's what that looks like, you know, in 2000. <laughs> and and um, even still on your 87th website, you're not thinking, oh, I want to do something different. You're like, oh, yeah, I was like, totally I was trying to leave. So Procter and Gamble wasn't necessarily the issue. I think that if I had stayed at P&G for the rest of my life, I could have found things that would have been interesting to me to do. It's vast company and mm. so many different areas that you can work in and so many different countries you could choose to work in and things like that. But um, it was Cincinnati for me. I got to a point where I was like, I need to leave Cincinnati. I'm bored to death here. <laughs> and New York is the only place I can go where I can recapture the five years that I spent in Cincinnati. <laughs> Probably in one week, actually, in New York City. <laughs> so I, I applied to NYU, um, got into NYU, decided that I was going to pivot again into uh, into finance. Um, I started out thinking I was going to build a dot-com that was going to change the world. And that was mm -hmm. right at that point where the dot-com industry collapsed. Yeah. Um, and there was a Silicon Valley, there was a Silicon Alley in New York, the Silicon Alley was, was, um, emerging and there were so many different startups that were happening here. And I remember my applications for business school were talking about the startup ideas and, you know, all of the things that I wanted to do in the dot-com space. And, and so, I applied maybe in October, November. By the time I got here the next August, Silicon Alley was closed. There was nothing. All the dot-coms had closed. They'd all dissolved. Yeah, <laughs> that bus was and, real. You know, I'm in a conversation um, with the career counselors at, at NYU about the fact that I might want to consider another area because... <laughs> There was no investment going into dot coms at the time. So it was like, oh, um, and finance was something, of course, that made sense being that I was in the financial capital of the world. Yeah. And there was a lot of opportunity in finance. Um, the summer between first year and second year. I worked at Lehman Brothers, which is funny. I just saw the Lehman Trilogy on Broadway, and it was such <laughs> a reminder of that time. I, I I spent a summer there and said, no, that is not for me. That is a definite no. Mm -hmm. I'm not cut out for this space at all. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Was it the work or was it that particular work environment? It was the work environment. It's Wall Street, Wall Street was not for me, and I ended up working for a hedge fund for five years. But I, I felt like it was more entrepreneurial. I was working with a smaller group of people. I had a lot more autonomy. 
I could work across functions, which is what I was interested in. I didn't really want to be siloed. Um, like to, you know, you are the person who reviews this balance sheet every day. Like I didn't want to be that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked moving between finance and marketing. Um, I, I liked being able to build things from scratch. So I knew all of this already. Um, I had a mentor from business school who talked to me about a theater project he was trying to do in the 90s that didn't happen. Mm. Um, and the other exposure that I had to the theater world was um, Joseph Volpe, who was the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera um, at the same time that I was in business school. I took his arts administration class just on a lark, basically. And the case that he gave our class was to negotiate the terms of um, stalled union agreements for 17 unions that are housed inside of the Met. And that was my first exposure to anything to do with backstage um, other than, you know, dancing in the nutcracker when I was a kid. But I mean, I mean, how the operation works, um, how it all comes together, all of the departments that go into building a show. And that was my first exposure to it. And um, I tell everybody to take the tour of the Metropolitan Opera if you're in New York City, because uh, the the inside of the building contains all of the departments. And so, you know, on a, on commercial shows, which I do now, you never see that mm-hmm. you have to take a train up to Hudson, New York to see the sets being built, or mm-hmm. you've got to take, you know, a taxi um, from the theater district to another, to the, to another, you might, you might have to go all the way to Brooklyn to a garment shop where they're actually building your costumes um, you know, all of the different shops are housed in one place. You can see the composer working with them in orchestra inside the Met. You can see the costumes being built. You can see every. So it's a really cool. It's a really cool experience to take that tour. I'm going to. Yeah. I've not done that. You know, hey, let's I, do I, it. I know. Let's do it. There do. has to be too many people around or anything. <laughs> or mass on. Yeah, these days you <laughs> Of course. But, you know, as you're as you're telling this story of Lehman and the hedge fund and, you know, um, it's so usually when we do the the podcast, there are D's, you know, got a guess or I do. We we tell the other one, like, make sure you read up on the guests. And I and she had to tell me a couple of times she may have felt I wasn't going to do it. But, you know, and I and so a a few things that I read and saw and I know we'll get into this later is is, you know, that you're an incredible change agent and that you're such a big supporter of people of color um, in the production and Broadway space. When you were at Lehman and working at the hedge fund, was there a recognition that you were a woman of color and that you may or may not have been treated differently? Or were there other people like you in your space? Um, you know, did any of that come into play to sort of say, it doesn't matter what space I'm in, I'm going to be a big supporter. I'm just curious. And I'm, and I'm asking from experience because it took me a while to really understand that, um, you know, in the workplace that, 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 that maybe 
I wasn't being treated fairly, or maybe there was there was a that I was a woman of color that that was operating in a, a mostly you know white environment. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious what you thought about at that point, or was it not something that you thought about? Um, it was uh, it was interesting because my cohort, you know, the summer. I mean, Lehman was just a summer for me. Yeah. It was just the summer between first and second year. My cohort was pretty diverse, believe it or not, but all of the leadership at Lehman right. was white male yeah. leadership. And so that signaled to me that this is not where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that I that turned me off, and I'm coming from, you know, Procter and Gamble, which had been doing a lot of work around diversifying the boardroom and diversifying leadership. And this is back in the nineties. Very forward thinking, you know, I mean, they were trying to, they were trying to make those strides. I remember us being in conversations um, at P and G where they were trying to come up with terminology to understand why managers would treat women of color differently than white women. And I'm like, Whoa, you know, (laughs) They're talking about this in corporate America. What's happening? <laughs> and and I was like, wow. And they were talking about things like, um, like uh, seeing seeing certain women as women that that um, would need protection, and seeing other women mm-hmm. or women of color as women that would not need protection, that would not need advocacy that would not need any of this because we're so strong, you know? Um, And so those audience didn't just see all of us just roll our eyes. (laughs) I know they will. (laughs) They will. I hope you feel it. I mean, those were the conversations, you know, when I'm, when I was there. So then to make that transition into a space that's dominated by a, a white male culture that had not done any introspection, any type of review of itself at the time was really jarring. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is not, this is not where I want to be. Um, I don't feel like it's going to necessarily be a great experience for me. And I, I know that other people have thrived in that environment. So I think to each his own, but um yeah, that was that was what turned me off. And I thought in the more entrepreneurial environment, at least I would have a lot more autonomy to go mm-hmm. in the directions that I wanted to. You know, but the hedge fund was a small shop. So it was still, you know, led by several um white males. And it wasn't that I necessarily felt compelled like I need to leave here. Um, just the opportunity presented itself to produce a show and I jumped right in. I mean, I dived into it like I'm selling. Okay. I'm selling a basket of, of uh, I'm selling a basket of ETFs and stocks to people every day. And you mean to tell me I can be selling them an investment opportunity in a Broadway show instead. And I was like, no brainer. Um, where do I sign? Um, see you today. Let's let's get this done today. And that that's kind of how it went. <laughs> okay. Can you unpack that for us? How yeah. did the in, the opportunity present itself? And 
clearly from everything that you're sharing, you were poised to jump successfully into the space. So there was, you know, all these seemingly perhaps at the time, you know, uh, disparate experiences professionally, personally, that were coming together to prepare you for what I think, you know, it was like your life calling. But how did it, when was that moment when your opportunity met your preparation? Oh, I like that. Uh, so, uh, I, I can't take credit one. for that. <laughs> so mentor who I was introduced to um, while I was in business school, who became my producing partner. Um, and like I said before, he had talked to me about trying to do an all black version of Cat on the Hudson Roof. He oh. talked to me about it. He tried to do it in the 90s. It didn't happen in the 90s. And so... 2006, I get a phone call from him. He said that he'd been at a party. He was talking to a certain actress um, and talking to her about Broadway and what she would want to do on Broadway. She said she would love to be in a Tennessee Williams play. And so it brought up everything for him. He tried to do this, you know, 10 years before and so the next day he calls me up. I mean, and he might call me at nine. He might've called me at nine o'clock in the morning by 12 noon. We were in our lawyer's office. <gasps> that's what that's how, about. that's how dramatic that was. It was like, he was called me at nine. Like you won't believe it. I was talking to so-and-so last night. And she said, I would love to be Maggie in Canada had to roof. And so he was like, I think it's time. And he said to me, would you partner with me to raise the money, to mount the show, to produce it, to get it up on Broadway? And I'm like, what? He said, I'm going to go meet with the lawyer today. I was like, what time? I'll be there. I stinking love it. May I ask, and you know, you don't have to, well, yeah, please answer the question. Was this the actress who was eventually cast in the role of Maggie? No, that's all right. Okay. That's all right. But you know what? <laughs> she, she helped to catalyze this wonderful production. Hallie it was Hallie Berry. She <gasps> went on to have kids and not, not get cast in the role. <laughs> <laughs> that so. is a okay. Because that production and correct me if I'm wrong, went on to be the most successful, uh, highest ticket grossing show of the 2008 Broadway season. Anika Nani Rose. I mean, that's right. She was a brilliant Maggie, of course. Absolutely. And I, I still, I still run into people now who, who talk about how much they loved that, that production. So what, what kind of, Tell us what went through your mind when when you heard the accolades and you thought, okay, this is the first time I'm producing. I'm onto something here, or were you just like, oh yeah, that that way out of the park? Yeah, that's a part of the that's a part of the issue. We were in like um, this total honeymoon, you know, halo effect moment of wow. We came from Wall Street and we know what we're doing. Yeah. You know, we've just taken Broadway by storm. And so <laughs> that was that was our idea at the time. <laughs> to those who I mean, it's I mean, then that was the first show. That. When the first show, when the first thing you do, you know, when you have that beginner's luck, and that's what I'll call it, um, 
it well, definitely warps your sense of reality. And uh, we were sleepwalking through that production. I mean, we were being led by angels in every direction. Mm-hmm. There were so many people that were helping us navigate um, all of the politics, all of the all of the relationships that we didn't have that we needed to build. I mean, all of it was just serendipity all all the way around um the cast trusting us um debbie allen the director trusting us you know coming on board with novice producers to um but really i think that we were able to do it because there was no other opportunity there was no one else doing it Mm. and so by creating that lane all of this talent, all of these icons, all of this theater royalty was willing to say yes. James Earl Jones said he would use the, um, he would use the monologue, the big daddy monologue that's in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof to audition for everything that he was auditioning for all throughout his career. Never thought he'd be able to play big daddy because Big Daddy's traditionally cast as a Caucasian man. And so he um, he said, I mean, the, the, the quote that Steven always uses, my producing partner, but he said, I always wanted to play that crack. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you the power of community. You know, the two things that you said that just really, I don't know, I felt this, it sort of shook me, you know, I created, the lane was created that wasn't there before, right? And that I think is such an important comment. And then also, you know, when you created that lane, there was the community that came together that sort of, you know, and I I think it's, that's one of my favorite so far pieces of the story. And by the way, we should do a time check because I want to get to all this stuff that we get to so um but i i think that's fabulous what happened after that so you keep saying it's beginner's luck so makes me think that uh the next few productions tell us no, what went, there. No, it, didn't, it didn't go downhill believe it or not not because, at all not right. at all I'm, well because, uh, yeah oh I, well just just so people understand how momentous it is yeah um just in case they don't know preeti i don't know if you know alia can you break down what it means to be a lead producer on broadway versus yeah. a producer you know, just generally, because some folks might say like, oh, but wait, wasn't Oprah produced on Broadway? When we go? Those sorts of things. But yeah, it's sure. a different, mm-hmm. it is a different lane. It's a different level of responsibility and commitment. So can you just fill in our viewers? Well, okay. So the, ironically, you know, when I was talking to you about my dot-com startups, so I exercised all of that energy in producing. I compare producing a Broadway show to starting com because um, you're the CEO of a startup company. Um, you've got to convince all of the money people, all of the potential investors that you have a great idea and that people are going to respond to it and there's a market for it and you'll be able to sell it and all of those things. Um, you've got to convince the talent that this is real, that you've got money behind this, that this is going to happen. Uh, they don't want to attach their brand to something that's not real. You've got to convince the theater owners that this is real. You've got the money, you've got the talent, you know, all of that alignment has to happen. 
and I describe it as um, something that's kind of happening in a circle mm-hmm. um, where none of it can move forward without the, uh, the, the those three elements cannot happen without the other two elements. And so you're constantly chasing, Yeah, you know, you might say to the talent, well, we're talking to the theater owners. We think we're going to get this theater. And you might say to the theater owners, we're talking to this talent. You know, we, we think we're going to get this talent. And you might say to the investors, we think we're going to get this theater. We think we're going to get this talent. We think it's going to happen on this state. And, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of have to wait for the shoe to drop and somebody to say yes. And then the dominoes start to align and everybody saying yes for the same date and the same time, the stars align, and then you have a show. (laughs) Well, I will say it is, it's truly momentous because uh, the world that we know of of Broadway, uh, it really is just a handful of theaters in, you know, Midtown Manhattan-ish that are really owned by just a few people. How how many families is it? Like five families? Yeah, there are three major theater owners. Basically. And so- And a few nonprofits. There you go. There you go. So it's a it's a it's a tight cartel. I think that's the word that that I've heard used. And in the history of, you know, what's now considered the Broadway theaters, that the first shows were mounted in like the 1860s-ish. And now here we are, 2021, almost 2022. And in that entire span of time, there have only been five African-American lead producers for any of the tens of thousands of shows that have gone up right. in over a century. So, and I think the reason why you were asked, I think the reason why you were asking me to draw the distinction is because mm-hmm. there are lots of people with the title producer on Broadway and right. um, you can invest a certain amount in a show and, uh, um, and receive that credit. You can receive a producer credit as an investor at a certain level in a show. And so there are a lot of people that have taken that on and have been very successful. And if you get a producer credit on the show, what that means, you know, when everyone runs up on stage to get a Tony award, you too can go up on stage to get a Tony <laughs> award because you invested at a certain level in the show. One of the perks who wouldn't want it. Look, God, I got dreams. Hey, you got to convince, <laughs> hey, convince people to put that money in somehow, you know? So. Right. Yes. But being the CEO is an enormous, an enormous achievement. And you just have this trail of successes. So after well, it's you- a lot of responsibility. So <laughs> I don't do it that often. I'm not I'm not like stretched so that I am doing too many of them. I mean, we've we've been lead producers on four things over the time. Mm-hmm. So not everything. Do you when you first started out, like, did you have any sense of intimidation about being in this territory? Do you feel, you know, much more? Uh, do you feel at home now? I mean, you're a member of the American Theater when you get to vote on Tony shows, you know, or nominated shows. But does it feel like you've, in your own sense, clearly the the resume says it's something. But do you feel like now I have arrived? <laughs> No, no. I had imposter syndrome for a long time. I think um, it wasn't until we were doing Eclipsed on Broadway that I really felt, and it was hindsight, and it was the it was the first time that I was really looking 
back at what we had done. Everything that we had done kind of felt like we were on a hamster wheel and we were moving from one thing to the next. And there wasn't a lot of time to think about, wow, this is, this is what you got. And, you know, um, <clears throat> we moved from doing cat on Broadway to cat on the West end that happened organically, but very quickly we moved from one to the next. <clears throat> we moved from cat on the West end to um, streetcar, which was already in the works. Um, another Tennessee Williams piece that happened organically. We were in a conversation with Cicely Tyson and then Michael Wilson made the call to her and said, what about trip to Bountiful? She was looking for um, something to bring her back into um, <clears throat> the consciousness of the theater community. And so that was the perfect piece for her to come back on and, and she got a Tony at like 88. Yeah, she got a Tony. And then she gets a Tony at, at and I don't know if that was her actual age at that point, but oh you know, <laughs> I mean, really. So and then we rolled into being co-producers on um Romeo and Juliet because we were building relationships with all of the theater owners at that time and the Nederlanders were were um producing that and so that was crazy i can imagine i can imagine how surreal that feels and mind you i'm nowhere near her but i think lynn nottage posted yet uh, maybe on monday that she went from taking like a historic iconic photo with the six other playwrights that are featured on Broadway this year. So seven playwrights, seven black playwrights on Broadway this year. She went from taking that photo to going to the first preview of her musical MJ um, in the same night. And she was just like, you know, this is like a life moment where I've I've got, I'm running from one amazing feeling to the next. And I felt that way on the night that Michelle Obama came to see the trip to Bountiful. <laughs> because that I can only be, imagine. Yeah. Well, that happened to be the first preview of Romeo and Juliet um, two blocks over. And I was running from one to the other because I was like, well, I can't miss Michelle Obama at trip to Bountiful tonight. <laughs> And no, that's not happening. And I've got to celebrate the people that are mounting Romeo and Juliet. So I was literally running back and forth up the street. And I was like, this is amazing. Wow. (laughs) And so it was it was a snowballing thing. And then, you know, and then Paramore came along and we we wanted to partner with Cirque du Soleil because we really wanted to understand how a big musical happened. Um, and what you have to do to make a big musical happen. And then, you know, Eclipsed was a function of Lupita Nyong'o trying for trying out for Romeo and Juliet and being offered the understudy and saying no. And so we, she can't, and I tell this story too, she came to the opening of, of Romeo and Juliet 
there was one picture taken of her on the red carpet. No one knew she was the 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 big celebrities at the opening were from Orange is the New Black and yeah. um, and a a week or two later, um, Twelve Years a Slave came out. And it was Whoa. like, oh, then she's oh, on the cover yeah. of everything and she's yeah. everywhere. And so we approached her and her team about what, you know, what a mistake that was. And <laughs> what would she be interested in doing on Broadway? And she said eclipsed. And that that began the conversation around us producing Eclipse. And by the time that show came to be, I was starting to think about just all of the work that we had been involved in and, and the choices we had been making and what kind of, what kind of signaling are we doing with the choices that we're making and are they responsible choices? And it's like, I wasn't putting any of that together until that point. Hmm. You know that they say life is something that you live forward and you understand when you look backward and you know, this raises an interesting question for me. When you first uh, uh, agreed to to just see what you could do with Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and you start front row, you know, uh, back in when when was it created? Two thousand six. Two thousand six. Okay. May like May fifth or something <laughs> like that. That was the that was in the lawyer's office. That was All the right. <laughs> a lawyer's office is a good place to be sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's not all doom and gloom, people. So. At that time when you started out, did you have any sense of mission other than to produce that show? Was there a broader vision? We um, we did to just we change did. the game the way that you have. Now there's seven did. Broadway shows. Okay, please tell us what was the vision at that time? Well, we and wrote, is that, has it changed over time? We wrote out a mission statement at the time, which was about um creating more opportunity for people of color on mm -hmm. Broadway. We thought that meant casting in our naivete at the time. We thought that meant, oh, we need to offer, we need to create more opportunities for actors of color mm -hmm. on Broadway. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until we walked into the theater for the first tech rehearsal. I mean, this is how green we were, okay? But we walk in the theater and we meet the production manager and we're talking to the mm -hmm. stage management and we're talking to the, P the, the, the production assistants. And mind you, Debbie Allen was sharp enough to know that she wanted a diverse creative team. She pushed for that. So mm -hmm. we didn't even understand that that was an issue because that was our first show. We were like, yeah. oh, there are people everywhere who can do it. showed up. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then we get into the theater and it's like all of the stage hands. There's no diversity. Um, you know, we start asking questions about that at the theater. We go to our first advertising meeting. What? Not. We were the only people of color in mm -hmm. the room mm -hmm. marketing a show with all people of color. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. We were like... Where? Oh, where? <laughs> this is an advertising agency with no people of color. How, how can, you know, how, how does this happen? Mm -hmm. And that's what it looked like. 
And, you know, then you go down the line, um, the press agents, accounting, legal, on and on and on. So after the first show, and I was I was in the conversation about this earlier today, when we went over to the UK and we were trying to replicate CAT, we had to take out an ad in the newspaper to try to find creative artists that could do the costumes and the lighting and the set design because we were told by our general manager at the time, oh, we just don't have that here. We just don't have uh, people of color who who have enough experience to do this work on the West End. So we took out an ad in the paper. What did the ad say? Looking for designers of color to uh, you know work on this show. That's right. <laughs> and that's what was excellent. the response? Yeah. Oh, so we heard from a costume designer who had been designing costumes at the Royal Opera House for 25 years, but oh had gosh. never given never been given a chance to do a West End show. Oh my god. And she designed that's our everywhere. costumes ultimately. I mean, you know. That was <laughs> that was a no brainer. Um, you know, we heard we heard from um, lighting designer. We heard from lots of people. We heard from stage management. We heard from lots of people who had not necessarily been on West End, but had been off West End in smaller theaters all over the country, but had never been given a shot because the the. I mean, the way that the companies are built out for the shows is is very similar to what happens, I think, in the film industry, in the Mm -hmm. construction industry. You know, anytime you're dealing with a situation where you have a leader who gets to choose all of the team um, and usually it's a director. I mean, in our world the director is going to build the creative team. If the director is comfortable working with these five people, those five people are likely going to be on, on all their shows. Right. And it so, brings, I mean, it's, yeah, it's very the Cohen difficult. brothers mm-hmm. yeah. and Matt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's how it works. And, and asking them to consider someone else is really tough because they don't trust them. They don't know what mm-hmm. they can do. They feel mm-hmm. like they're being imposed upon. I can't create my vision unless I have my team. And so what, what is exciting, I think, in this time right now and what's happened during the shutdown and um, all of the reckoning that's happened in the last year and a half with yeah. with, with um, all of the post-George Floyd uh, reflection, introspection, mm-hmm. um, new knowledge for some people. Um, what's happening now is that everybody's challenging all of those paradigms, which is right. really exciting. Um, I think it, the pendulum is probably swinging too far as it always will from one way to another way. Now it's, Oh, how can I find, um, you know, how can I find a, a, a director of color to direct my next show? How can I, I, I need, I need, um, I need, you know, and 
I'm getting those questions, which is funny to me because I'm like, I need to create my own database. Damn, a lot of people are asking me. <laughs> I'm like, I am not the unabridged encyclopedia of all the black people on Broadway. What's um I always I'm always a timekeeper in my entire life, but I'm I have to add, but here we are almost at time. But what's your mission today? If you know, what's your, what's your mission statement today? Mm, Well, it's shifted over time. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I mean, we're still on the path to creating opportunity for people of color on Broadway. And um, now it looks like bringing in investors. Now it Mm -hmm. looks like figuring out ownership, you Mm know, um, how do we own a theater? on, on mm-hmm. Broadway, mm-hmm. how do we um, establish a space where we will always exist, you know, and it won't be um, a trend yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, something that ebbs and flows um, in and out of the industry, which is not what we're, I mean, we were thought of as one hit wonders initially when we came in and everyone's like, Oh, these wall street people, whatever, they're going to do this show. Great. They did that show. Great. We'll never see them again. They did that. Great. But then we got the last last one and the next one. Now they're like, Oh, I guess you're a part of the community. And and we feel that way now. Um, Mm -hmm. It took a long time, but we feel like we are part of, um, a community and have a voice. And so anytime, anytime that we can be a part of um, making that path smoother for other people of color to be a part of the community, um, we're trying to do that. Um, You know, still, and like I said, I really wasn't thinking about it like, am I picking the kind of work that I would responsibly want to look back and say, I'm very proud to be a part of this. Um, I wasn't thinking about it like that until I started to look back and now it's harder to choose things that I want to get involved in just for that reason that um, I'm thinking about um being an example to someone else who's who who wants to have this kind of career mm-hmm. and as that example i would want people to know that um i've been i've been very thoughtful about the projects that i've gotten involved in and i've thought that they were pushing the conversation about what is broadway forward um in some way and so I think that's that's still our mission, um, creating a path for people of color um, in this space. And we're we're trying to diversify into um, adapting things into film, which is exciting. Um, that are coming from the stage, and we think there's not a lane and an opportunity there. Um, and a lot of people are getting into that space. We're not necessarily the pioneers there, but that but that's an exciting space for us too. Um, so you know, it's been good. We'll see what happens next. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, 
I'm not afraid of continuing to pivot. Definitely. Um, I'm getting all sorts of things over here, but so much. <laughs> I know I have to say what an inspiration you are truly in, in this past hour. It's, you know, it, I think it's extraordinary your book of work and, and what you've been able to do, but to also have the presence to um, continue doing the work, but to say, I'm going to continue to do the work. I'm going to pave the way for people of color, but I'm also going to be extremely conscious about what I get myself into as a learning process. I think that's extraordinary, truly. And, and it's it, it's selfless, but it's yeah. also the, it is the, the, <laughs> inclination of a leader and of a visionary, because you're not just thinking about what's satisfying you um, in the moment, but what's my legacy going to be? And how mm -hmm. might that be inspiring to someone else? And Aaliyah, you have knocked it out of the park. You continue mm -hmm. to inspire all of us. And you, what you had referred to uh, reminds me of a statement that Ava DuVernay had said, she was asked about, you know, changing structural inequality in Hollywood. And she said, you know, I, I really think less about trying to break through somebody else's door or break down the man's glass ceiling. I'm just building my own house. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of what you are doing is not only are you guys building your own house, the whole world wants to be a part of it now and replicate it and emulate it because we all have, I think, an, an actual fascination with everybody's human stories. And it's mm -hmm. the falsehood of, you know, certain stories and certain people are more interesting. Actually, I think everyone truly believes that it's not true. And when there is a space for the, the, the facts of the beauty of the complexity of all people to be showcased, there's a thirst for it. It's a vacuum. So thank you for answering the call. Oh, that's a beautiful that. way to put it. That's beautiful. She it's has a way truth. with words, this one. I'm, I'm telling just you. That. It's, just, <laughs> it's just how I feel. It's just how I feel. But truly, thank you. We let's do this again. Truly, because we have we, a whole other like... section of questions. <laughs> I know. The effect part two. <laughs> that works, Preeti. I think you've got some rapid fire questions to to bring oh, us home with. Yes. Although Miles was like, "Come on, guys." Yep. Oh, All right, sorry, ready? Miles. We're thank ready. You, Miles. you ready? Give you a tip. Okay, so we always close out the episode with just five quick questions. Just say what comes immediately to your mind. Just fill in the blank. She's going to ask you a question, and you just, first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Preeti, you ready? Um, yep. Something most people would be surprised to learn about me is? Ooh. Um, um, that, I'm, um, that I'm goofy? I don't know. <laughs> okay. My favorite show of all time is. Ooh. Oh, that's that's tough. Um okay, favorite, favorite, um hmm. what first comes Yeah. Uh, musical. Musical. Oh, okay. Favorite musical. Okay. Favorite musical of all time. I'd have to say, um, rent. Mine too. Okay. okay. Sorry. One day I'd love to collaborate with. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. 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 Um, let's see. See, when you've gotten to work with everybody, it's like, who's left? I know that's what I'm going. I'm going through the list of people. Um, 
I mean, I, okay, I'll put this out there in the universe, but. All right, put it um, out there. The Octavia Butler estate. Got it. Okay, in three years, I hope Broadway. Ooh, I hope Broadway um, expands and offers something that we couldn't have imagined today. I Three shows it. that everyone in New York must rush to see this season. Ooh, okay. Uh, MJ, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> MJ <laughs> I'm on board with that one. Yep. Which is fantastic. I'm not going to say anymore because I'll just start gushing, but it's good. Oh my goodness, it's good. Okay. Ain't too proud. <laughs> Naturally. So good. Shout out to James Harkness, my buddy. He was in the film that we just produced. Sorry, but he's an A2 proud. He's wonderful. Yes, absolutely. And uh, if you want something, if you want to see something fun, compact, like a 75 minute show, six. All right. That looks like a lot of fun. A lot of fun. All right, Preeti, we got to go. We got to go. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. We do have to do a round two, I think works works truly on how to just become a visionary and a pioneer people be fearless small choices change the world build your like these two (laughs) well (laughs) thank you for that and anybody who wants to check out the shows as she said uh production of ain't too proud the life and time of the temptations and mj the musical are right now on broadway go and see them and to our fans that are out there on the west end in london or travelers go see get up stand up it is breaking box office records it is about the life of bob marley who doesn't love that and if you want to learn more about Aaliyah and front row productions exciting work be sure to follow her at Aaliyah harvey at instagrams on the insta webs is that what they call it oh, right? oh Aaliyah j Aaliyah j oh, harvey i made it come my sheet I'm so sorry. See, these are my fake glasses. <laughs> Aaliyah J. Harvey on Instagram <laughs> or at frontrowprod.com uh, or access front row uh, on the interwebs. I think that's it. And yes. thank you so much for having me. We thank will you talk to you this. soon. See you later, loved guys. It. Bye, everybody. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect. And we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.